welcome to our weekly podcast of Womankind Collective with me, Lou Hawkins-Thompson and me, Jinty Sheeran. Join us as we embark on a fun and educational journey talking to experts and advocates on subjects that are often taboo. So go and get that kettle on and settle in for a chat and hopefully a lot of laughter along the way. Coming up in today's episode of Womankind Collective Podcast, we meet the brilliant Sarah Graham, an award-winning health journalist and author of our book club, book for this series, Rebel Bodies, where she investigates what it will take to bridge the gender health gap whilst shining a light on the prevalence of the daily and dangerous disparities in the medical help women and men receive. We will be discussing all this along with medical gaslighting, biases in doctors and patients and asking what is the way forward. In the book collective we discuss chapter four of our book club um, Rebel Bodies with the author herself Sarah Graham. This week brings you our brand new series, brand new series, brand new feature, Nice Nice buns. Buns. Find out how we are getting along with our WRI and finally we have a quote of the week and we've had lots of comments but we've sort of whittled it down because it's a big one so we've whittled it down to these two rather long ones but we thought they were worth definitely worth mentioning they were they were fab yeah so we're starting um with not your usual menopause rachel so she's only just had a chance to listen to this week's episode but i just want to say that sprouts are not just for christmas thank you rachel in fact, in this house, they're actually for Chris. They're, they're not, not actually for Christmas, for Christmas. at all. Mm. We eat them ev- nearly every week when they are in season. But on Christmas Day, we have callots, which are a cross between sprouts and kale. Oh, wow! Not, I need to go and kaleets, not callots. Do you breed? Do you breed your own, Rachel? Yes, callets, callets, yes, in the garden. Kaleets. and um, and they're absolutely delicious. So a tad expensive, but definitely a special treat for Christmas Day. Agree on cooking. We simply steam ours until they are not hot. So until they are hot right through. Oh, yes. um, a little yielding, but a little al dente. A little yielding. Oh, it's oh, like nigella, Rachel. And she's got a little bit of butter and black pepper on there <gasps> if you like a little bit of fancy dressing. I like the sound of that. Oh, Sounds and I perfect. bet it's lovely and windy in her house. Oh, yes. All year round. Yeah, with those all those collets. Um, the smile starter, lovely Jill McLaggan says, thank you for a great, another great listen, ladies. I have so much to chat to you about. Once you start looking into gender bias, it is so awful. I feel for any woman who has not really needed to use the medical system until perimenopause. They're in for a bloody rude awakening. And she goes on to say, I have been dismissed by one orthopedics saying your wrist isn't broken and they were looking at the wrong x-ray, you idiot, she says, <laughs> by infection disease, infectious diseases. They told her to take up Tai Chi and she had chronic diarrhea for nine months. Thanks, guys. Three, uh, by gastroenterology, here's um, an and antidepressant you look a bit down i'm not God. surprised if she'd been on the toilet for nine months yeah exactly for the heart attack malarkey um yeah we've we we've if you want to know more about jill's heart attack malarkey um go back and listen to one of our previous episodes but she says what can we do educate women in our lives and the men not enough people are at all aware about the very real effects of the intrinsic gender bias please make your loved ones aware Knowledge is power. Send them to the Womankind 
podcast. Oh, thank, thank you, you, Jill. Jill. How has your week been, Lou? It has been a little quieter because I've had no spats with Alexandra Shulman. Okay, this week, good, so good. She hasn't um, got me goat this week. But um, a little bit of light relief. Now, you know I do like a nice glass of uh, wine, a mm-hmm. good wine. Mm-hmm. I mean, gone now are my blue nun days. Yes, the Lieb so, Fromlick days. Yes. <laughs> well, funny you should say it like that because um, there are some wines that we've been pronouncing wrong all this time so I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some names how they're how I pronounce them and then see if see if I know how they're supposed yeah, to be yeah like the real okay. thing okay you know, it's just probably me know. yeah right peanut noir pinot noir yeah no, that's right <laughs> <laughs> okay sauvignon blanc sauvignon blanc no sauvignon blanc oh, no so that no c. c okay mm-hmm. Um, rise. Does that go with like a Benoit Blanc? Yeah, must be, must be. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Riesling. Oh, I should know that because it's German. You should. Riesling? No. Riesling. 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 I did know that. Riesling. So I've always said that. Um, right. Rioja or Rioja, as a lot of people say. Yeah, I think that is Rioja, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No. No. Rioja. Uh, Rioja. Yeah. No, no, no. Spanish. Yeah. No, not K. No. And here, here's a big one. Tempranillo. Tempranillo. Never heard of it, so I don't oh, even nice know what it red. looks like. Oh, it's a nice red. It's a very nice red. Well, I always say Tempranillo, Tempranillo, okay? Mm-hmm. But no, it's not. It's Tempranillo. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that's one. Um, Shiraz? Shiraz. don't know. Yeah. Shuraz. Oh. Shuraz. And Syra. Don't know. Another nice red. Sira. The last one, because she's glazing over. Um <laughs> I so- don't drink wine. <laughs> no. Anyway. Yes, I'm just educating you, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> just in case. We're having a language. Life, lesson. life turns to, to a good wine. Um Sancerre. Don't know. So nice, so nice crisp so, white. Yes. It's Sansu. Oh. So then, and we know, don't we, that Freshnet, I, that, how fresh, did you say it before? Fra- it was fr- Frixnet. Frixnet is Freshnet. I know. We found that See, out, that you, every day is a school day. Yeah, it is. So I uh, try to educate myself when I go into the off license on pronouncing my wines. That's what I did this week. And did they understand any of it when you went into said no, off really, license? No, not really, because I forgot no. my sheet. Yeah. Yeah. you got a good bloody red, love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. I yeah, love nice juicy them, red. One of them Riojas. Riojas. <laughs> For the weekend. Thanks for the weekend, yeah. Nice Rioja. And how about your week, Jim? Yeah, not not bad, Lou. I want to know when you think, or did you know, rather, about... We've got Valentine's Day, basically, next week. Oh, we have. We've done a thing on Valentine's Day last yeah, year, didn't we? Yeah, we did. We're, we're, we're fucking ignoring it this week, this year. <laughs> it's, it's a load of it's shit, It's a load of anyway. shit, basically. Um, if you love your partner, Commercial whoever, then, then fantastic. But yeah. you don't need a day to, to do any of it. But, you know, if you love it, or, you know, great. Go out and enjoy it. But I thought well worth celebrating is Galentine's Day. It's quite a newish oh, thing. yeah. Um, but I know it's American and it's, a, you know, but I quite like it. So um, 
Galentine's Day, it, it's about celebrating the inspirational women in your life. So what's not to love about that? And I think actually most women have been, you have a Galentine's night quite regularly. Yes, you had I, a Galentine's night on Saturday. Night on night. Saturday. I did. There's buns. also, with your buns, there's also Palentine's Day, which is a day that celebrates the platonic, your platonic soulmates in your life. So that's male, for whatever gender they happen to be. Can't we just have a day, like just a day? They're going to have hundreds of days now, aren't well, they? I every day is going to be a ev- day. Every day is a Galentine's Day for us, really, isn't yeah. it? Most days. Um, so I, what I love about Galentine's Day, it doesn't matter if you're single or in a relationship, it's a chance to be grateful for your gal pals. Um, and while some romantic partners come and go usually friendships are one often some friendships, friendships are, are forever um so with that in mind Lou I got you a little Galentine's Day present oh. it's, when we're recording it'll be um tomorrow that Galentine's Day so Galentine's Day in case you didn't know folks is usually the 13th of February the day oh. before Valentine's Day but you can celebrate it anytime can't you? every day's a Galentine's Day I think I here reaching down is it vegan i got one one for myself obviously as well (laughs) oh so this is a a little book called friends to keep in art and life by nicole you need to find out how you say her surname tersigny nicole tersigny who we've been following on instagram for yonks um and if you don't go and look her up because it's a it's combination of two of the things i love one is um smashing the patriarchy and two is art so she combines her love of art with these romantic beautiful pictures um with comments on them things like there's a lovely a beautiful painting of two two very old-fashioned sort of romantic women and one says um this is which i thought was me and you lou actually one says why one says why doesn't anyone laugh why doesn't anyone ever laugh at our hilarious stories and the other one says because we're obviously funnier than anyone else (laughs) well I've just found one and I've just just bored um again there's there's three of them they look cherubic cherubic is that cherubic thank you that's because I even though I might have to put it on my wine list um (laughs) um these women and they look looking gorgeous and it's one of them saying do you think anyone will know we had drinks at lunch? And then the other one says, our tits are out, love, so they might. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I can have great fun. I'm going to be guffawing in yeah, my bed tonight. it's good, isn't it? So yeah. grab your gal pals and um, text them. Celebrate them. Tell them you love them and, cel- and celebrate them this, this week. And on the 13th or any day. Every day's a Galentine's. Tis. Sarah is an award-winning freelance health journalist and founder of the Hysterical Women blog, specializing in health, gender, and feminism. She has written extensively on these subjects for the iNewspaper, Refinery29, The Telegraph, Grazia, The Guardian, The British Medical Journal, and many others. And Sarah was a finalist at the 2021 Medical Journalists Association Awards. So Sarah joins us today to talk about her brand new book, Rebel Bodies, A Guide to the Gender Health Gap Revolution, which is our book club choice of the whole of Series 6. So welcome, Sarah. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Well, congratulations on the um, successful launch of this wonderful book. 
here in front of me and all behind um, yeah and Lovely. yes and behind Sarah we can see um can we um just begin by reading you this comment um so which which we discussed last week Lou didn't we, we in did. our book club um it was a response to an article in Pulse a magazine for uh, GPs the article was from December 2021 and was discussing the news that the government had suggested that GPs excuse me, should have compulsory training in women's health, including the menopause. Now, Dylan Summers said, I hadn't heard of the gender gap as a dis as disadvantaging women before. I thought men had less health spending and did worse on all health outcomes. Have I missed something? And he was backed up by a Dr. Rogue One who slapped him on the back saying, spot on, Dylan. So can you tell us what Dylan and Rogue One have missed? What is the gender gap? Health gap. Health gap. There's lots of health. There's gender lots of gaps. gaps. Yeah. <laughs> lots of gaps yeah no absolutely I mean this is one of the things I talk about in in the book is there's this kind of misconception that you know we we know that women have longer life expectancies women typically live longer than men um but uh that doesn't necessarily mean that our health is better so that one of the things that that research has also shown is that actually women spend more of their lives in ill health than men the the gender health gap is a really kind of tricky, complex beast to, to grapple with, um, and it manifests in lots of different ways. Um, but essentially, it is the, the gender gap in uh, treatment, in health outcomes uh, between, between men and women. Um, and, you know, some of that is to do with differences in in completely gender neutral things like uh, you know heart attack care women receive worse heart attack care they're more likely to be misdiagnosed when having a heart attack they're more likely to die from a heart attack so that's something where there's an obvious gender gap you know that you could have one man and one woman going through the exact same thing um, and the outcomes statistically are, are different um you also see it in areas that um, primarily affect women. So, you know, if you think about the menopause, if you think about things like endometriosis, but also, you know, chronic illnesses like ME, for example, fibromyalgia, mm. which are not female specific conditions, but they disproportionately affect women. Those are conditions that actually medical science doesn't know a huge amount about still, mm. you know, they affect lots and lots of people um but the research isn't there we don't know what causes them we don't have cures um you know when it comes to the menopause there's been a lot of kind of stigma and a lot of myths around you know things like hrt and and safety of hrt in particular um so there again you know it's not necessarily a di direct comparison between men and women's health but there are lots of areas of health where just because stuff mostly affects women, we know less about it. And so that means that women might struggle to get a diagnosis. They might be struggling for a lack, you know, lack of treatments. Um, and there's a lot of stigma around a lot of mm. these issues. You know, men might feel quite comfortable talking about prostate cancer, for example, but try and talk about vulval or vaginal cancer and that people are a bit more sort of icky and that seems like mm. dirty and, and disgusting yeah. and we're not supposed to talk about that. So I think there are lots and lots of different elements to it um, that 
where it's, it's it's a lot more complicated than just who lives longer than who. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And you talk about that a lot in the book about the history of the way women have been treated, don't you? Um, where and where it might might stem from, um, because we've we've sort of been seen when it comes to research. I mean, we weren't included in research. Well, it was always the default male was yeah. was researched. Um, it was in the nineties, I think, wasn't it, that they started to? Yeah, I think ninety three off the top of my yeah. head. That might be wrong, but um, but yeah, certainly up until very recently, women were excluded. Um, from a lot of trials and you know part of that is down to genuinely tricky things like pregnancy obviously there are lots of sort of ethical considerations if somebody is pregnant and and you're wanting to research medications etc um but a lot of it actually was partly an assumption that you could just do the research on men and and just extrapolate the findings that that men and women are exactly the same um, but partly it was this um, idea that our hormones are too complicated. Mm. You know, it's, it's an extra kind of variable that you have to take into consideration and that's more expensive and it's more time consuming and it's it's more difficult for researchers. Mm. Um, and that's a problem, you know, when it comes to understanding of what sex and gender differences there are with all sorts of different health conditions. Um, but it also means that we don't have a good understanding still of of female hormones and, and of the, the mechanics of how they affect particular conditions. You know, we there are lots of conditions like I talk about in the book, for example, with um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is an mm. interesting example where there seems to be some kind of hormonal component which explains which may explain why women are more likely to be affected but we just don't understand what what that kind of what the mechanics of that are because we haven't we've avoided looking at at women's hormones because they're difficult and they're complicated and and more expensive and and all of this kind of stuff that that means we just get neglected I mean, that's a huge red flag that they actually never included um, women because of hormones. To me, it's fascinating. I'm like, I really want to understand, you know, why is is somebody more likely to have particular symptoms during their period or uh, during pregnancy, during the menopause or, you know, why would you not find that completely fascinating mm, that somebody yeah. could have these fluctuations at different points in their reproductive life? I think that's one of the most interesting kind of scientific mysteries that that we still have you know and and you know there there is more and more research being done into a lot of these areas now i think we are starting to see slow improvements but there is just such there's just so much catching up to do i think oh so much catching up we're years behind aren't we yeah it's almost um, like researchers just took the easy route because you know because... Well, we're an anomaly aren't yeah, we yeah we're completely. a bit of an anomaly so absolutely it's... yeah and i think you know historically a lot of researchers have been male so they've looked at things that that interested them or that affected them personally or, or whatever so i think you know we are starting to see as there are you know there's a growing number of women going into research going into stem who are looking at things that affect them personally or that affect their sisters their friends you know yeah. um so i think you know i think i think it is improving and i think more broadly as these conversations are growing about women's health there is a 
growing interest across the scientific community mm. a growing awareness that these things need looking at but I think it's still a real struggle you know I I spoke to um a male professor of um who does a lot of work with polycystic ovary syndrome and he was saying it's just so difficult to get funding mm. for these subjects you know that even if you're a researcher who's really keen really enthusiastic about one of these women's health issues you can't get funding because the funders don't see it as a priority yeah um so there are lots of layers to it definitely so we think i mean i th- this book is actually a critical read for change in women's health i mean the gaslighting from health professionals women not being listened to which um and the dismissal of symptoms and pain how did you choose the women's stories from your blog hysterical women and how did it affect you as you wrote about them? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, in terms of choosing them, I think a lot of them, it was the ones that had really stuck with me from when they were in the blog. The one that I always talk about is um, Claire Norton, who is the mother of Marion Crofts, uh, who died um, from ME. And that's one that I've just almost kind of felt like haunted by ever since she wrote it you know that so that one really stuck in my mind there were there were a lot like that where I the ones that I felt particularly shocked by Mm. that I felt particularly moved by I think also I was very conscious of wanting to make sure that there was a diverse range of stories represented I didn't want it all to just be you know white middle class women which I think are often the stories that are heard most Mm. um you know if you look at kind of media representation even other books on the subject tend to um not be particularly diverse so I wanted to make sure that there were diverse stories in there that you know it was including perspectives that are not often heard you know including trans men non-binary people black women south asian women who Mm. who have lots of very similar experiences but also lots of differences you know and and it's those differences I think that are really important really crucial to kind of try and understand so yeah it was a combination of the ones that had really stuck with me but also wanting to make sure that it was diverse that it was representative um, and inclusive there are a lot of really difficult stories in there that were hard to hear hard hard to read um kind of the hardest stories to read are the most important ones for for people yeah as well I I think Um, so it's important not to turn away we need some anger to make some change don't we in in most in most things and we've spoken about it before and we've been doing this the book club on your book is the diversity is what we've really enjoyed because as you say I've read we've read quite a lot so much um but and almost to the point of we realise our privileged position as cis white women that we've never even noticed it missing in yeah. other books. And that's the awful thing until you we read it. And that's think, another gap. Yeah, it's quite it's quite frightening, um, mm. uh, particularly some of the trans stuff we were reading in the chapter three, I think, mm. last last week. Um, and the fat phobia. I mean, <gasps> gosh, it's just, just astonishing, isn't it? Absolutely it's astonishing, scale, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The first chapter in Rebel Bodies um, is the personal is political. And you begin with a look at how little has changed in the 50 years <laughs> since the second wave of fe- feminism, um, especially the gender health gap. Um, why do you think that is? It's a really tricky question. It I is. Think... Sorry, it is a tricky <laughs> question. For a Monday morning. Yeah. <laughs> For a Monday morning. 
I think, you know, I think looking at it um, on, on a kind of big picture level, you know, to some extent, I think it's just that the patriarchy, the sexism, the misogyny are so deeply ingrained that it it will inevitably, to, to some extent, take a very long time to shift. Yeah. There's cultural changes to be made. We've got to change attitudes. And I think that is something where each generation is getting better and better at it but you know it is a it is a slow progress um you know and and then there's there's the legal changes which again are very slow there's you know changes of of who's in charge and 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 how those decisions are made Mm -hmm. and I think it's it's frustrating I think I definitely think that it could be happening faster um, I think, it, you know, there are political reasons why it has perhaps been slower than we would have liked, you know, because I think if you, it, so much of the change that we need needs to come from the top. And so if you look at who's in power and who's influencing decisions and, and you know, who gets to decide where the money goes, who gets to decide w- what the research priorities are, who gets to decide who's running the NHS, you know, all of those things are political. Um, and, and there's not many women much... involved there yes, in the UK exactly. at the moment either, is there? Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that was very much what I wanted to do with the first chapter was to lay out how much this is a political situation, mm. you know, because I think it's very easy to blame individual doctors. Um, and actually, I think that the problem itself is systemic it's very deep rooted, you know, it's in medical training, it's in medical textbooks, it's in the structure of the NHS, it's in the political choices that are made by our government. Um, and and yes, some doctors say horrendous things and have very outdated misogynistic views. And, and that's a problem. But I think we, we need to kind of go beyond looking at the individuals and look at the, the problem as a whole. Yeah. Do you think the um, the Me Too movement has sort of? Uh, it feels to me like that's put a bit of a, shifted a, a slightly, bit of fuel yeah. in in feminism a bit because more and more women are speaking up about not not just what the actual Me Too movement was for in the first place, but they're speaking up about. Um, and you talk a lot about advocates and taking people yeah. with you to appointments and and because we're speaking out. You might find a friend that, you know, there's something in common. People are talking, women are talking mm. to each other, aren't they, a little bit yeah, more? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I think the Me Too movement has been hugely significant. And like you say, it's sort of, it's, it's taken on a life beyond what it was originally about, you know. It has created this kind of, you know, I talk, I talk in the book about the second wave feminism and the consciousness raising groups and women sitting around in their houses. It's created a kind of a new generation of that, but it's not just people in each other's houses or community centres or whatever. It's online and it's global. And I think that has really democratised those conversations. It's it's meant that more voices and more variety of voices are available, are part of those conversations. We can hear different experiences. Yeah. Um, and learn about experiences that are very different from our own as well Mm -hmm. as experiences that are similar Um, so yeah I think I think me too has been huge in terms of kind of galvanizing feminism and actually just making I think for my generation I first identified as a feminist when I was at uni and a lot of my friends at the time didn't really 
but I think Me Too has shown women who didn't necessarily realise that they were feminists, that actually they were feminists all along, and there was all this stuff happening that they were pissed off about, but they didn't have an outlet for it. I think it's given yeah. a lot of people an outlet and, and helped them to understand the structures and, and the systems and, and where all of these problems come from and what needs to be done to tackle them. Were your intentions or plans for the book altered? Because you were pregnant when you were researching and writing Rebel Bodies um, with your first baby. And that was during the pandemic. And there was also a midwifery crisis as well. So how did that affect what you were, did it or did it affect? The, the pandemic definitely did. Mm. Um, I mean, the pandemic was was the catalyst for the book really I mean I'd, I'd been running the blog for a few years uh, when the pandemic started and to be honest I'd, I'd always kind of had the idea of a book in the back of my mind but it was in that first lockdown where as a freelancer you know work was really tough because like with everyone it was so kind of up in the air and edit you know things were changing so rapidly from a kind of news perspective and a lot of health content was being done in-house because health was the main story mm. like um you know you had politics editors doing health stories um and so it was a really challenging time for me as a freelancer and work just kind of dried up for a bit and and so that was kind of the impetus to go okay well I haven't got any freelance work I'm going to write a book proposal that I've been sort of sitting on for ages and never done anything about and I think you know timing wise in terms of what we learned from the pandemic the fact that it it really kind of brought health to the forefront of, of everyone's minds but also really highlighted a lot of the inequalities mm. and you know a lot of the challenges you know the way that disabled people were treated during the pandemic which I talk about in the book um and and the kind of social determinants of health so the fact that we were seeing um racial discrepancies in who was worst affected um, you know the emergence of long COVID and and what that's kind of done to the chronic illness community. Um, that's had a massive impact um, and really sort of shaped the way that I uh, that I went about writing the book. In terms of my pregnancy, I mean, I guess at the point at which I found out I was pregnant, um, I already had quite a sort of detailed plan for the book. I knew sort of exactly what I was going to include. So I don't feel like my pregnancy changed a huge amount in terms of the structure. Um, obviously, I mean, you'll know if you've read the conclusion that it very much kind of shaped the way that I wrote mm. the conclusion mm. because it was, you know, as I was writing the conclusion, I was about six months pregnant and, and very very aware of this midwife crisis you know I'd heard these stories about my local hospital and you know all these women having awful experiences because of midwife shortages and the midwife-led unit kept being closed so women were having to give birth on the consultant-led unit and um and and plans were very up in the air and so I was very anxious and very conscious of that I don't think it changed an awful amount of what I actually wrote in the rest of the book. Um, certainly, I think, you know, I <laughs> I talk um, quite a lot about the fact that one of the first chapters that I was writing and editing in my first trimester was, was the perinatal chapter, you know. Mm -hmm. So I was writing these kind of awful stories about women's pregnancy and birth experiences, miscarriage, you know, postnatal. That's... I definitely felt mm -hmm. very 
certainly very overprepared. Um, You know, in lots of ways, I think it was useful uh, because it meant that I went in kind of eyes wide open. I, you know, I was very conscious of doing my pelvic floor exercises throughout my pregnancy. I went and did my pregnancy Pilates and was very kind of aware of what I did and didn't want out of Mm. my pregnancy and out of my birth experience um and had had a lot of those conversations both with my midwife and with my husband about you know how he would advocate during for me during birth if if things weren't going the way that I wanted them to um and if I wasn't in a position to speak up for myself it shaped my pregnancy experience more than the other way around yeah uh, if that that makes sense sense. Um, and actually you know in the end I was very lucky I had a really positive my pregnancy was very straightforward birth was very straightforward and I had a very positive experience and Mm. was really well supported by my midwives um you must have heard so many uh people's accounts we love this hashtag don't we (laughs) yeah (laughs) hashtag shit my doctors say (laughs) says um that that nothing much surprises you anymore but whilst you were researching but was that the book was there anything that you heard that did shock you or surprise you I don't think there was while I was researching the book partly because a lot of the a lot of the content from the book is is drawn from from that hashtag it's drawn from the blog so it was stuff that I'd already heard so I don't think while writing the book there was anything thing in particular I mean there were still things that I was going back over going oh my god I, st- I still can't believe this even mm-hmm. the second or third or fourth time I'm reading it um but I don't think I mean no actually having said that the again the interview that I did with Claire Norton um about her daughter Merrin so she had previously written a blog post uh for hysterical women Um, But I interviewed her specifically for the book and some of the details that came out in the interview that hadn't been um, in the blog post, some of those really shocked me. So Mm -hmm. like she talks about her daughter having surgery and she was sedated, um, but she could still feel what what was going on. And she was screaming and, and begging the doctors to stop asking for more pain relief um and was just ignored that you know the attitude was just we've sedated you you can't feel anything and and despite the fact that she was there and she clearly was in pain and clearly Mm. could feel it the doctors just wouldn't accept that and Claire talks about rushing up to the doctor afterwards and challenging him about it Mm. and and he just has this awful dismissive attitude of he said something like get out of my way you stupid woman I've got to go and save somebody's life and so that you know that how again is is I mean I always come back to Claire's story because it is so awful and so harrowing you know and she lost two daughters in just utterly heartbreaking ways where she had really tried to advocate she had known something was wrong and she had been dismissed and so that probably was was one of the was one of the things that really did shock me. Mm-hmm. Um, as you say, I feel like sometimes I'm a bit too unshockable because I've heard so many horrible things. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, stuff like that still it just it makes me so angry. Yeah, you know because I think what what kind of egotistical god complex you know to to be able to dismiss somebody like that and and just 
you know, I need to go and save somebody's life. I'm so important that I can't yeah. listen to the concerns of, of this mother whose daughter's just screamed through surgery. It's, it's and, so, and, and not so believed. Dis- not believed, so dismissive. In mm. in um, chapter three, I think it is, or even chapter two, it might be, it's talking about um, the girl that cried pain. And that that is exactly oh, yeah. is that sums it up. Mm. When I read that, you know, you know the the you know the cry wolf sort of syndrome, it, mm. it's exactly it. And how many of that's I would say, that's a hundred percent of women at some point. Not not as awful as as you were saying about Claire's uh, daughter, but um, all of us have been not believed about our pain oh, at yeah. some point, yeah. haven't yeah. we? Yeah. Which is just awful. And I think that is kind of a problem in two parts. So. You know, on the one hand, there there is this idea that women exaggerate that that we're overly emotional and it, it's not as bad as we're you know we're yeah. pretending it's worse than it is for whatever like you know I mean why the hell would you but whatever reason mm-hmm. there's this belief that we exaggerate but I think also there's this kind of normalization of women's pain that you know because we have periods because a lot of us will go through childbirth that it's just something that's normal for Mm. women to be in pain and as a result of the fact that it's normal we should just put up with it we should just suck it up and there's nothing we can do about it it's just that's just the way it is and we know that isn't true we know that there is a huge kind of spectrum of what is and isn't normal pain and you know even even when you look at childbirth we have pain relief options women should not have to be suffering to the extent that they are um because they're disbelieved mm. I mean with with every everyone's story as well and throughout the book you've got the statistics that the back it all up which one I mean there were so there are so many statistics but were any any that really stood out for you as well that you were like when you researched it you were like whoa I think probably actually yeah the one the one that I probably find most shocking because and it's the one I mentioned earlier is is around the heart attack statistics, mm. you know, that women, I think it's three times more likely, I need to double check that, but I think women are three times more likely mm. to die of a heart attack um, than men. And I think that one I find particularly shocking because like I say, it is something that we think of as a gender neutral issue, you know, with the female specific stuff, it's shocking in itself it's shocking in its own right you know things like the fact it takes an average of eight years to diagnose someone with endometriosis is appalling but I think it's particularly stark when you look at the gender neutral things like heart attack care because we know what we're doing with cardiovascular it, mm. you know it's not like endometriosis where we don't have the research we don't have the understanding mm. we you know it's something where it should be entirely possible to treat women exactly the same as men and yet it doesn't happen seven times more likely to be misdiagnosed and discharged during a heart attack which is just you know and I you know there's this kind of we have this idea that you know women have different symptoms from men and and that that's you know stems from a from a gender gap in itself that we there's less awareness of these kind of female symptoms but actually when I was researching it, the latest research should suggest that that, to some extent, is a bit of a myth in itself. You know, women are just as likely to have the chest pain, the pain going down the arm, the the kind of real classic symptoms as men. Um, there is variation. There are lots of different symptoms, but that variation is 
is across the board you know a man might have a a, a more atypical symptom um but but is still more likely to to be diagnosed appropriately and so i think that's where it's really interesting to look at the difference between sex and gender and a lot of it that that we've kind of historically put down to sex differences which actually when you properly drill into it is more to do with gender bias than it is anything kind of biological obviously there are there are biological differences as well but a lot of it is so so gendered but I think also the one one thing that that shocked me with um you know when we started down our kind of you know looking at um menopause and is you know people sort of tend to that that heart conditions is one of the biggest killer of women isn't it and people tend to think of breast cancer but it's actually um uh yeah yeah cardiovascular disease kills more women than than breast cancer and and again you just don't think of it as being a condition that affects women it's not something we talk about when we talk about women's health I think that's the other thing that I really wanted to highlight with the book is you know very often when we talk about women's health we talk about gynae issues we talk about childbirth we talk about the menopause but we don't tend to think of things like cardiovascular disease or dementia or chronic illness as being women's health issues actually from my perspective you know the whole of our health is women's health right Mm. we're not just wombs you know everything that affects us is relevant and those gender health gaps exist across the whole of our health not just the sort of the bikini medicine it's not just boobs and wombs and vaginas you know everything affects us yeah um and and yeah is affected by that health gap yeah and it seems unless it is the bikini medicine we're just given as you said before the default male just a smaller amount mm. just like we're mm. just small men a smaller amount of the same medication even though we've got different hormones um in the beginning of the book you mentioned the importance of the many we've spoken about it here um intersecting biases and oppression that can contribute to many people's experience as a patient um you also close the book in chapter 11 in a similar vein but from a doctor's perspective can i speak to a real doctor it where it, dismantling a sexist medical model where you describe doctors coming up against misogyny sexism racism and ableism um well one of our one of our listeners who works at school told us this um there's a car crash and the driver is killed and his son is badly injured at hospital a doctor walks into the room and says i can't treat this boy because he's my son how is that possible now i've asked lots of people you lou knew the answer i've asked lots of people um but she she asked all the all the children at her school and she said not one child could work it out it's obviously the mother um but that just sums it up doesn't it it's yeah it's unbelievable and you think you know in this day and age there are so many more female doctors now it's not like it's unusual it's not like it's uncommon to see a female doctor but there is just still this and yeah and and you know you still hear of female doctors being treated you know dismissed as the nurse or whatever or um spoken down to there's women in the book talk about you know people addressing their more junior male colleagues rather than them when they're the consultant um so yeah I felt it was important to kind of get that side across you know particularly 
when we're talking about not just blaming individual doctors looking at the systemic issues actually for a lot of people working in the nhs has all the sort of resourcing challenges but also has those kind of interpersonal challenges yeah. of being treated like you are less than yeah. um your peers your colleagues and, and probably from patients and from peers as, as well mm. yeah yeah absolutely so, so what is the way forward I was yeah. going to get a big, big old question. <laughs> what is that? Do you think that the gender health gap will actually finally become a thing of the past or have we got a long, some point. a long road ahead? I think we've got a long road ahead. I think we, um, I feel reasonably optimistic that we will see improvements in my lifetime. Um, you know, I think the conversation very much is going in the right direction. I think there is certainly political pressure if not political will to do something about it um and i think you know we've seen with the women's health strategy that the government is very keen to be seen to be doing something about it um how much kind of concrete change will come about as a result of that strategy i'm not sure um, but I think it's really important that we keep up the momentum, that we keep having these conversations, that we keep the pressure there, um, you know, and ultimately that we hold wh whoever's in government for the next 10 or 20 or however many years, that we hold them to account for this and don't let them just let it slide. Don't let it drop to the bottom of the agenda. You know, I think we have to really keep on, keep on pushing it. Mm. Um I think in terms of the solutions, you know, I say this again, kind of over and over and over in the book, but it's money. We need the funding. We mm -hmm. need the funding for the research. We need staff to be well paid. We need a, a workforce strategy, you know, to, to get more staff in, but also to keep them, you know, to make them feel valued and to make them feel like they're safe at work. A lot of the issues that we're seeing at the moment with the strikes is you know it's partly around pay but also it's around the fact that that places are so understaffed that the staff who are left don't feel that they are working in a safe environment they cannot keep their patients safe mm. and that is really scary and that's making more and more people want to leave um you know so i think something really urgently needs to be done to address that to to work on recruitment on retention on making staff feel valued you know they were heroes in the early yeah, days of the exactly. pandemic and we stood on our doorstep clapping them clapped them and now it, we can't even you know pay them fairly yeah. it's just it you know so that i think is a big one funding for resources funding for research funding for you know for training you know there are lots of things where i speak to gps who say you know, I'm really interested in the menopause and I want to learn more and I want to be able to support my patients, but I have to do the training in my own time and at my own expense. Yeah. Um, you know, so funding for stuff like that would be really valuable. Um, looking at medical school curriculum, looking at the textbooks. Um, yeah, I think I think there's there's lots there. And then the the sort of bigger picture stuff, I suppose, is is the wider cultural shifts the the conversations breaking down these taboos having these conversations making it easier for women to feel like they can go to their doctor and use the word vagina or talk about 
you know, whatever's going on with their bodies and that they will be taken seriously, that they'll be given a fair hearing and, and helped, you know, because yeah. I think we we can't underestimate how big an impact it has on people when they build up that courage to go and ask for help and they're not given it, you know, or they're not believed. That not only means that they're not getting the help in the immediate term, but it also makes it much harder the next time something's wrong, you think, oh, there's no point going. Mm. Someone that, you know, they, they're not going to believe me. They're just going to dismiss me. And that then means that you potentially have people putting off seeking help in future where it might be even more serious, you know, mm. and, and, and diagnosis is then being delayed, treatments being delayed, and you're just kind of pushing problems further and further along. Um, so I think, you know, there's just so much of, the problem is just really very short-term thinking you know short-term savings short-term um you know cutting corners almost and not thinking about the longer-term impact and the fact that ultimately you know from a financial perspective if people don't get those early interventions it costs you so much more further down exactly. the line that's what we've been yeah. finding out with our campaign for a menopause yeah. clinic and mm. the stories that we've we've been sent yeah yeah exactly. the money the money wasted on treatment that wasn't necessary yeah yeah it's it's huge so we've got to yeah. keep going with the activism keep talking to Definitely. each other um and um yeah and and get your um your mum friends whoever to go along with you to support your you if you are in pain um but that that's just going back to your um one overriding thing that I've got from from your book which I think is brilliant is is advocacy you know and and mm. and it's you know take do go to the doctor do take somebody with you um it's it's just so important isn't it as I say in the book advocating for yourself can be a really powerful way of of making sure that you're taken seriously but mm. equally you know if it doesn't work like that's not your fault. Don't feel yes. like you've done something wrong or you haven't advocated hard enough. You know, if you feel able to, then ask for another opinion or see somebody else make make a complaint. But, you know, I think equally it's really important to recognise that all these things are really hard and there will be people who are so vulnerable who don't feel able to do that. Um, you know, as, as we were talking about privilege earlier, you know, it's much easier to to advocate for yourself and make yourself heard as a middle class white woman yeah. who's well educated, who's confident, feel you know feels able to speak up, than it would be for 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 certain other people. Mm. So I think we need to recognise, you know, that actually yes, advocacy is important and and it's important that we kind of empower people to feel able to speak up. But equally, you know for women of colour or disabled women or trans people, it's so much harder to do it in the first place. And it it's also less likely that you're going to get the results because mm. of the biases that exist. Um, so, yeah, I, I always want to make it really clear that advocacy is not easy and it's not something that is possible or achievable for everyone. And that's OK. Mm -hmm. um you know I don't want people to come away from the book feeling like 
oh, if I'd just done more to fight for myself, then this would be different. You know, that is not the case. The system is against us. In our book club um, at the moment, we're on chapter four. It's talking about chronic chronic mm. pain um and um and why disability is a feminist issue and it goes back right to the beginning of the question where you what you were talking about was while women's slightly longer life expectancy is sometimes cited by men as proof that gender equality doesn't exist it's worth noting that this mortality advantage is offset by the fact that women spend more of their lives in poor with poor health and disability and one of the quotes that shocked me actually was something like it just but to do with long COVID was 60% mm. of people um, was it that uh, died from long COVID were um, had some sort of disability so I've lost I've lost my uh, I've lost my stats of, of COVID deaths were, were oh, that's things. right 60% yeah. of COVID deaths were disabled people yeah again the stats Sarah are just absolutely amazing that you back everything up with yeah so it's, the data published by the UK government for the year 2018-19 shows disability is more prevalent in women which this I was really surprised actually 7.7 million um, the men 6.3 million mm -hmm. so again more disability in women yeah absolutely and you know I've I've said to other people, I feel like this chapter probably out of all of the chapters in the book is really kind of gets to the heart of the issue for me. I think, you know, every single one of us is just, you know, one illness or accident away from disability ourselves, you know, and yeah. I think often we're very complacent about it. We think, oh, that, that would never happen to me. Um, but you just have to look at long COVID and, and the number of people who were perfectly healthy, living normal lives, who now are disabled by long COVID to see um, to see how wrong that is. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's very much a there but by the grace of God go I kind of situation. And I think the way that disabled people have been treated throughout the pandemic in particular, but but, you know, also more generally is it it just sums up so much of what the problem is you know that thing of not being heard not being believed you know having these conditions that that might fluctuate uh, in line with your menstrual cycle that are under research that are poorly understood that some doctors don't even believe exist at all or yeah. or that doctors believe are all in your head um I think for me, it really kind of gets to the the core of, of so many of the issues that I talk about in the book. Um, and, and the other thing is, you know, I think chronic illness advocates are some of the people that I have been most influenced by in my own work. Um, you know, I think there is a very important, very powerful and actually also really very overlooked community of chronic illness and, and disability advocates who are doing fantastic work, mm -hmm. who are looking out for each other, who are raising awareness of these issues um, and and not necessarily uh, being heard, but just sort of plugging away. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's probably the most important chapter for me of the entire book. 
because some of these chronic illnesses, like the autoimmune diseases, they're not fancy or romantic, are they? They're, you That's know, 80% I, I mean, eighty percent mm-hmm. exactly, eighty percent are women. Um, and and this this to me, this paragraph you you wrote kind of summed up so much. Um, you say one literature review concluded that compared to men, women have more pain. It is more accepted for women to show pain and more women are diagnosed with chronic pain syndromes. Yet, paradoxically, women's pain reports are taken less seriously. Their pain is discounted as being um, psychic or or non-existent and their medication is less adequate adequate than treatment given to men I mean that just put your hands put in your, your hands yeah, in your it head. really sums sums up the whole of the gender health gap yeah. I think yeah. you know it's um yeah it, and it's that normalization of women's pain it's that that disbelief that that mistrust you know but women can't be trusted yeah to accurately report um what's going on in our bodies um and that if something is wrong that science can't explain it can't possibly be science's fault it's not because science hasn't (laughs) yet understood it it's because it's all in our heads you know there's there's the uh, others and that again i think is where we come back to the the medical ego thing of not wanting to admit that you don't have the answers yes yeah i completely agree patient than say I don't know. We yeah. haven't researched this. Nobody's looked at that. Nobody understands why this happens. Yeah, you talk about that. This uh, Maya Duesenberry, Duesenberry, author yeah. of Doing Harm, and she's got the the terms like the knowledge gap and the trust gap, and it, that's exactly what mm-hmm. you're you're talking about because yeah, they don't know. They sort of blame yeah. the patient. Um, and it, but it's good as a patient to almost understand that isn't it understand that that might be what's happening that because I think the generation before us um believed every single thing that you know the doctor the consultant was God knew all um and it's good God-like. to know that actually they don't there might be some things that you know it would be good if their ego let them go and not, actually I don't yeah. know that but let me go away and find mm-hmm. out how lovely would that be yeah and I think you know from conversations that I've had patients do really respect the doctors that say I don't know let me go away and do some research you know that is much more useful you know for for a patient than somebody going oh well it must be in your head have you got anxiety let me prescribe these antidepressants for you um you know I think as you say there's very much been this historically kind of doctor knows best attitude Um, And we need to move more towards a model where it is a collaboration, you know, patients have their own form of expertise. And it's not, you know, it's not textbook expertise, it's not five years at medical school expertise, but it is just as valid, you know, patients are experts in their own bodies. And that needs to be seen as complementary to the knowledge that that doctors have. Uh, it needs to be a partnership, a collaboration rather than, a, you know, rather than that sort of doctor knows best system yes. that, that we're used to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I just want to mention this retired assistant head teacher, Jane Green, was disbelieved by doctors for decades before eventually in her 50s being diagnosed with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos mm. syndrome. Um, and uh, you know that's it's it's things like that that still are I don't because I come across it when when I because I teach yoga so I see an awful lot of um mm. but people just don't know 
it, what even those things are uh, yeah. you, you do they it, it's just yeah absolutely no and and I interviewed a doctor who has Ellis Danlis syndrome uh, Dr Hannah Baron Brown and she talks about you know having met colleagues who don't believe in it that who think it's just one of these hysterical illnesses that where people you know women are pathologizing themselves and actually that you're just a bit bendy and it's not a big deal mm-hmm. I think there are so many of those conditions and it is it is the ones that disproportionately affect women that are not known about that are not believed in that are not researched um and it it really leaves people in the dark and and mm. struggling on their own with no kind of solution or or hope for you know there's no end in sight what are we reading next we we're on to chapter 5 next week we sarah move on from chronically female to all in your head mental health and hysteria so more kind of dis- being disbelieved and uh etc cetera, etc cetera. oh sarah yeah. thank you so much thank you for your time no, thank you um for having me. and absolutely this book needs to be on the national curriculum that's oh yes of, that's what it i does. think yeah that's our next campaign yeah. though, isn't it <laughs> That's our next our menopause going yeah. to Devon. You're next. That, that'll be next. Um, yeah. And for anyone listening, we'll be reading um, Sarah's book, Rebel Bodies, all the way to the end of this series. One chapter a week so we can really look at it and digest, and, and digest it and take get it furious. In. Yeah. Brilliant. We'll let you get on, Sarah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Give a, give a hug and a kiss to that baby of yours. <laughs> I will do. <laughs> Bye. Cheers. foodie collective we've got a new one haven't yeah we? we we certainly have it feels a bit odd going from um lovely sarah book collective um to our nice buns nice buns nice buns here's my nice buns so good you can eat me up beautiful voices we have there, beautiful voices beautiful. yes we're going to be on pop star the musical or whatever it's called oh they'll all they'll all be after oh, our simon nice cowell yeah he'll be after us so we cooked um swiss three kings cake so all all for this series we're not doing any old food we're doing nice buns aren't we lou mm-hmm. and i got this recipe um from the bun of the month from my almanac uh, almanac and um how did you get on, Lou? You did a non, although yesterday I said, how did you get on? She, I said, mine are vegan. She said, oh yeah, mine are vegan. Oh, apart from the milk. I said, what about the, oh, and the butter. <laughs> oh, and the an egg I put on the top. So apart from the apart from that, milk, mine butter are vegan. and egg, yours yeah. are vegan as well. How did you get on? Oh, they're, like, they're, they're almost like a Terry's chocolate orange Hot in a bun. bun. They are. <clears throat> and they this are. morning, because the buns are a little, little hard. I mean, my buns, when I made them, were a little dense. Oh, they're blooming lovely, aren't they? They were a little dense, so I would say it. Well, I did have my heating on on sun on mm. Saturday when I made them, and it was hard to rise because it was a cold old day. So, prove if you've got a proving, proving. you've got a proving oven, mm. um, that would be marvellous. But um, oh, they're like a Terry's chocolate oh orange Sorry, in a in a bun. Noises I'm eating, they are absolutely delicious. But I found them really easy to make. I'm not a baker. Oh no, they were simple. Really simple. Mm. But absolutely delicious. Yeah, they remind because what we've done this time, because they are, we both made them on Saturday and they're a little bit drier and harder now. But if you um, 
we've cut them in half and toasted one half like a hot cross bun. And that's better <gasps> than the other half. It's better than the other half. It's yeah. absolutely and put, and dark put a little bit that of... just melts on your thumb yeah. and then the butter's all running off. Oh, oh, and you've got your sticky glaze on the top. Oh, and I put extra nuts, hazelnuts in there. Yeah, she always goes off piece. Does Lou. Didn't read the instructions. Um, so, th- so it's easy to make. I was wondering what a vegan one would be like. Um, if you're plant-based, a vegan one is absolutely delicious. I've just replaced the butter with vegan butter. Um, obviously the milk with oat milk um, and the egg. I use a, a lovely um, egg substitute called Oggs. Um, and then every it's just easy peasy. Squeezy. Easy peasy bunny squeezy. Mm. Yeah. So we, we'll be putting all those details or the recipe um, and everything will be on our podcast show notes. And um, if you can hear something, the dog's having a drink. She's That's not me eating. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and we'll put that on um, on our Instagram next week. But basically they are Seville oranges. So it's um, what, what this Swiss King's cake, where it comes from, it's um, primarily made in Switzerland to celebrate Epiphany on the 6th of January. It's usually, late. we are, usually flavoured with lemon sultanas or chocolate chips. This version, however, has dark chocolate chips, Seville orange zest and we've given it a sticky Seville orange glaze to mark the arrival of Seville oranges in the shops this month and I know a lot of you um, or some of you have told us you make a marmalade with your lovely Seville oranges Um, so traditionally one of these buns would contain um, like a small porcelain figure or a dried bean and the person who finds it is crowned king for the day hence almost like a Christmas pudding yeah exactly Hmm. I didn't do that there we are nice buns nice buns W.I. Lou, how did you get on with your um, bush planting or flower planting? Well, I didn't do any grapevine planting. I didn't do anything with my bush. No, bush is still uncultivated. (laughs) Um, Well, I planted some daffodils because they're one of my favorite spring flowers and violas. And Mm. as when you came in today and our new little setup, Mm. you saw them, I've just put them by the front door. Mm. So when I come in or go out, they'll just make me smile. I mean, I, and I absolutely love a daffodil. I don't know about you. And apparently I did a little bit of research on my little daffs because mm. I thought they were, you know, quite an interesting flower. So daffodils are one of the happiest flowers around. Um, though they're from a small family of, of flower family, and they don't come in as many co- colours as certain other flowers. Um, they do, they, they, I think they're just such a beautiful, beautiful little bloom. So da- I like the way they pop their heads up but like sunflowers yes, don't they, they do. in the sun they do mm. and you know this daffodil symbolizes rebirth and new beginning so perfect for this time of year mm. uh from Imbolc, yeah sandra bullock yeah sandra bullock's um cousin new beginnings it's one of the first flowers to bloom at the end of winter announcing new beginnings the new beginnings of spring and signifying the end of the cold dark days well we're still cold today aren't we yeah Less commonly, daffodils may also symbolise creativity, energy and resilience, forgiveness and vitality, which I absolutely loved. And, you know, in China, daffodils are the symbol of good fortune and prosperity. In Japan, they symbolise joy and mirth. In France, daffodils are the symbol of hope, while in Middle East, they are believed to be aphrodisiacs. And they were actually... to eat? 
Well, I don't know. I'm... Or just have them in your garden. Maybe, maybe just to give some, well, if you give somebody a bunch of daffs, you know, your luck's going to be well, in, maybe. Well, yes, yes, exactly, especially around Galentine's yeah, Day. Yeah, well, who knows? Yeah. Who knows what could happen? I like um, a snowdrop. Oh, I nearly picked those up. Yeah, you know. yeah, but they were they're quite lovely. expensive. And they they symbol when you see them wild, they sort of symbolise hope and it's like purity as well. Yeah, isn't it? it is. And because they because they push their way through snow and ice, sort of telling you that spring is on its way, but not quite yet. You still got to watch. They still got to wait. Yeah. So they grow actually. They're quite resilient daffodils. They do grow all over the world, including the states and Australia. So they're not just a European not just or, or Welsh. British daffies or Welsh, yeah. Yeah, so they're not. So which I thought, yeah, they, they're spreading their joy all yeah. over the planet. So my daffs, well, they're, they're, they're out in your pot. They're, they're pot and they're coming up now. So I'll take Lovely. a picture when they actually bloom. How did you get on, Jens? I have um, located said rose bush oh, that I am going bush. to plant, plant um, it, but it's in my um, mum and dad's garden, mm-hmm. um, and we have just haven't had time this week. So we uh, that so I know to, where going to I'm going to rebirth. I was going to say that's re- wrong. It's in re-pot. the garden at the moment. We're going to have it in a nice pot in nice. our in our garden. So we are going to do that this week because it's. As the almanac says, it's the time to do your bushes. Yeah, so you must tidy those bushes. Tidy those bushes. Replant if needs. Replant. And I don't, are, you meant, are you meant to be cutting your rose bushes back this time of year? I wonder. I don't know. Can anyone tell us? Imagine yeah. if you're planting them. You've, you've got to trim your bushes be. back. Yeah. Potentially. Fantastic, WI. Thank you. Yes, Jess. and I have a new one, um, oh which my. I've lost. Hang on a moment. Hang um, on. Hold the line, caller. So, yes, I have a new one, Lou. Um, so, February is Vulva Cancer Awareness yes. Month. Um, so, symptoms of vulva cancer can include a lasting itch, pain or soreness and thickened, raised, red, white or dark patches of the skin of the vulva, open sore or growth visible on the skin, burning pain um, when you pass urine, uh, vaginal discharge or bleeding, a mole on the vulva that changes shape or colour, lump or swelling on the vulva. Um, if you have any of the symptoms listed above, particularly if they are not normal for you or they are persistent, um, or they are repeated episodes or they do not go away, be sure to visit your doctor. It's a rare cancer but if it happens to you or someone you love, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, matter how rare, rare it is. Or not, does it? It needs no, to be checked. Exactly. Um, and so, and remember, most women with symptoms like this do not always have cancer. Um, but your awareness to your symptoms is really important. An early diagnosis can save lives. And you may have some of these symptoms, and it might be um, a lichen sclerosis. Mm-hmm. But lichen and lichen sclerosis can be treated. But if left, it can go further on to uh, vulval cancer. So this week's henceforth with WI is to check your vulva. And for anyone who is listening that hasn't heard our episode with the lovely Claire Baumhauer, um, who has had vulval cancer, your WI is to go and listen to that. I think that is in series 
five, episode three, I think. But you will find it. It's called vulval cancer. So um, check. I your will be vulva. checking Use my vulvas mirror. this week. You can, Not my vulvas. You, my no, vulva. I mean, how many do you have? Um, you can go on to um, Claire's um, vulval cancer awareness Instagram, and there's loads on there. She's also got a website. How to check your Fantastic vulva? You need a mirror. Um, but yes, uh, and it's all on our podcast. So yes, that's your that's your Thank WI you. this I will week. Be, I will be WIing. Do you have a quote for us? Luckily, I do. Thank goodness, Fewey. Fewey. Otherwise, I'd have to make up one of my own on the spot. <laughs> Damn quote. Pick one of the books behind your head. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so my quote this week is from the sublime Mary Portis. I absolutely adore this woman. Oh, she's woman. great, isn't she? I really, really do believe that the future of being successful in work is going to be about embracing all of those wonderful things women bring. Empathy, collaboration, flexibility. All those wonderful feminine traits we're supposed, we're, we've suppressed for too long. Because the workplace is so male dominated, and I think it's about time we all became a bit more. Is that you speaking now? Not women. the quote. That's me. <laughs> That's me. You just, you just like Mary Porter. Yes. Good old Mary. Yeah. Thank you, Mary. Oh, what a lovely week. What a good week, Lou. And <clears throat> lovely Sarah. Yes. So we hope your tea's not gone cold and that you'll join us next Sunday for the collective. We would love you to subscribe, favourite and review our podcast. It really does help us spread the word. And please head over to our Instagram page, Womenkind Collective, to leave comments or DM us with your thoughts or watch us and our guests on our Womenkind Collective YouTube channel. And lastly, you'll find all the links, recipes, guest details and our hashtag Where's My Clinic campaign, the petition for a menopause clinic in Devon, on the podcast show notes. Fantastic. Nice bun and a cup of tea. Yeah, I'm going to go and taste me buns. Yeah.